All right. Good morning, everybody. Glad to be back with you. I got like been off now for uh, three weeks, and so I've got three times the length of my message today. So I figure I got about an hour and a half worth of stuff to share. So it's going to be good. No, actually, the teaching team's been jumping in the last three weeks. They did a great job, didn't they? For those of you that were here, absolutely. They did awesome. But I am glad to be back. Well, on vacation, uh, I did some reading, started reading a book uh, by Phil Anderson called Running on Empty. Really good stuff. And uh, in it, he recalls a story uh, about a person, I think it was Barbara Walters or somebody, that was interviewing billionaire Ted Turner. And uh, in this interview, uh, the woman started going through just so many of Turner's accomplishments in life. An owner of a major league baseball team, the Atlanta Braves, founder of several uh, television networks, including CNN, which was the first 24-hour news thing, TBS and others. They went through uh, his love for sailing and sort of his prowess for that, his tremendous wealth. He's a billionaire with a B. And so as they get towards the end of the uh, interview, in classic Barbara Walters fashion, she kind of has one... one, uh, question that she's been waiting on. And she just, she just asked him right towards the end. She said, so what does it feel like to be a billionaire? What does it feel like to be so wealthy? And Turner re- response, this is a fascinating response. Turner responds to her without even thinking. It's, it's, it's kind of like a big paper bag. He said, everybody sees that bag. Everybody wants it. But once you get the bag, you open it up and discover that it's empty. Isn't that fascinating? A guy that's billionaire. What so many Americans long for, if only I could have that, then my life would be full. Billionaire. He gets to the end and goes on national TV and in sort of just a off-the-cuff sort of way says, you know what it's like? It is empty. We are on week number, I think, seven. I don't know. I get lost someplace. And there's seven of a series that we're doing here at Ignite called Full in a World That's Empty. In this series, we've been walking through the book of Colossians, and this book of the Bible is all about discovering something better. It's discovering the life that you and I were meant to live, a life of fullness that we can uh, have through a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we can discover and live in this fullness in a way that nothing else in this world can deliver. We, kind of our, our theme verse for this has been in Colossians 2, 9 through 10, and it's kind of the foundational verse for, for uh, this entire book of the Bible, but it talks about this. It says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity, all the fullness of God lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you too have been brought to fullness. And so these sort of two ideas flow throughout this entire book of Colossians. The first one is this, is that in Christ and in Christ alone is fullness. He is fullness in every way. Real, lasting fullness is found only in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. And the second sort of idea is that if you are a Christ follower, if you have opened up your heart and life to Jesus, you have put your faith and trust in him, then that life of fullness is available to you and I if we are to step in and live in it, right? That we can experience the fullness of Christ in our own lives. That's pretty much what the entire book of Colossians is about. It's either talking about the fullness and the greatness of Jesus, or it's talking about how you and I can live a life where we can step into that fullness. We've talked about all different kinds of things. Today, I want to, I want to take the next step. We're going to deal with the second half of Colossians 3 and, and verse 1 of, of uh, chapter 4 as well. But we're going to talk about fullness, living lives of fullness 
relationally, fullness in relationships. And I have to say, some of the stuff we're going to talk about today, it's pretty countercultural. It's pretty jaw-dropping. It kind of goes against uh, some of maybe our natural tendencies of how we do our lives. And so I'm just going to ask permission right up front and say, Let's, uh, even like what Jake was praying, like let's just kind of crack the doors of our heart and just say, God, would you teach us today? Would you lead us? Would you transform us in a way that leads to fullness in the life that we're born for? All right? Uh, So we're going to start out with Colossians chapter 3, starting with verse 12. If you've got your Bibles, you can open them up to that. If you've got the Ignite Church app, you can click on there, click on our notes. All the scripture and notes are in there. Or you can follow along in the side screens. But we're going to start with verse 12, chapter 3. It says this says, therefore, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if you have a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them and all of us together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's keep going. Verse 18. This is where, this is like the crowd-pleasing part. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Yeah. Notice no women said yes to that. (laughs) Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to carry carry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and in reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since we know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Jesus Christ you are serving. Anybody who does wrong will be be repaid for their wrongs, for there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know uh, that you also have a master in heaven. All right, so we're talking about right relationships. There's a ton of stuff in there, a ton of specifics. But let me suggest to you that the entire passage can actually be summed up in three kind of concepts, three kind of ideas. The first one is this, is that the first one is that we receive from God his love, his grace, his mercy, and our, our ability then to, to, to serve and love and whatever everybody else is dependent on that. Receiving from God first, humbling ourselves, and elevating or preferencing others. We're just going to kind of walk through that, uh, and hopefully I can show you from the passage where this is all coming from. But uh, I, I just want you to kind of think about this and crack the doors of your heart. The first part is just to receive from God, and we'll just kind of walk through this. I absolutely love the way this passage starts out, right? Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. That's the way this whole, this whole kind of thing on relationships begins, this whole passage. He starts out by reminding them who they are as Christ followers. I have an amen from the back of the room over there, right? 
He starts out by reminding them who they are as followers of Jesus Christ. Remember, he's saying, fullness does not come from your wife or your husband. It doesn't come from friends. It doesn't come from having people around you that stroke your ego. or anything. That's not where fullness comes from. No, remember, he's saying, it's because of Christ's fullness, because of his great love for you, because you are becoming holy like him, because he lives inside of you and you're chosen by him and you're in relationship. It's because of those things that we are able to truly love and preference and lift up those around us. But it starts by receiving from it. We can't give what we don't have. As God has so loved us, so we are to love others. But it starts by receiving from God. It starts by receiving and knowing his love, knowing that we're chosen, that we matter, that we are his. I was just thinking this week, man, how much damage has been done in our world because we start looking to other human beings for stuff that only God can give. Right? We start looking to other people for, for, for that sense of fullness and completeness and everything else. Forgive me, but I think the whole dating thing is kind of built on this premise, is it not? I mean, there's even like uh, uh, chick flick kind of movies, right? You complete me, right? Kind of, and there's, there's all kinds of moments that are sort of built around this idea of like, if you find Mr. Right or Mrs. Miss Right or whatever, and you can find the completeness that your soul longs for in another person. And, as, and for a while, it's fun, isn't it? I mean, there's all kinds of hormones racing through our bodies, and we're, there's this euphoria, and we're just like, oh, he's perfect at everything he does. And, right, I mean, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's, all this stuff is happening, and we are, we are just swept away by our emotions. And we're thinking, yeah, you know what? This is what I've been craving all my life. The studies would say that between 18 and th that lasts for about 18 to 24 months. And then the hormones sort of settle down. And then real life sort of sets in. Sometimes that's after we've already said I do. And suddenly we wake up one day and we're like, what the heck happened? They've changed. Right? They, they are not completing their end of the bargain. Suddenly they're not satisfying and fulfilling and, and filling me in the way that I thought that they promised to. What happens? Like this is, and so, so bitterness starts to form. Anger starts to well up within us. We're like, this is not what I signed up for. And suddenly that starts coming out, right, toward, in conflict towards one another. And I'm, I'm doing this in the whole context of dating, but it can be in all, we can look to that for friends. We can look, right, to other people for this kind of approval of people or bosses or success or families or whatever. Right? We can do this in all kinds of, but we start looking, when we, when we look to other people, then we start doing damage to them. We start cutting them down. We start gossiping about it. Little groups of us get together. We say, you wouldn't believe my husband and you wouldn't believe my wife and, you know, I mean, all this we're talking negatively we're tearing them down because we're looking to people for something that only God can fill. they were never intended to fill you it's it's Colossians 3 that we were just looking at before Colossians 2 that we were just looking at before fullness comes only from Christ that's where that's where fullness and life comes from we have a God-shaped hole, right, in our hearts. Not a Tina-shaped hole or not a kid-shaped hole or not a whatever. It, our lives will continually be messed up. There will be increasing levels of frustration, increasing levels of conflict, of anger, of all kinds of things if we start looking to people for that which only God was meant to fill. 
Instead, God says, man, come and find what you need in me. Don't go anywhere else. I was reading, actually I was listening to an audible book this week uh, by Brene Brown. Uh, Great stuff. It's called Braving the Wilderness, the Quest for True Belonging and the Courage to Stand Alone. Fantastic, but anyway, <laughs> that's a totally different. But, but in this book, she starts talking about this stuff, the damage that gets done, especially in families where parents start looking to their kids or to one another for that which, which they cannot provide. And she starts talking about the damage that gets done, especially in kids' little lives. Sometimes kids end up feeling like they don't belong or they can't measure up, and that, that gets reinforced again and again and again until these kids start feeling like outsiders in their own families because they're unable to deliver what their parents want or need from them. And this is how she describes it. This is fascinating. She said, not belonging, especially in our families, it's got the power to break our hearts and our spirits and our sense of self-worth. And when those things break, there are only three potential outcomes. Now, this is a secular book, you know, kind of keep that in mind. But there's only three potential outcomes. And here's what she says. Number one, either you live in constant pain and emptiness and seek relief by numbing it and or inflicting pain on others. We don't see that in our world ever, do we? Right, where we, we either numb it by busyness or social media or Netflix or booze or whatever, right? We either just numb our lives because there's something in us that's messed up, something that isn't full, and we don't know what to do with it, so we try to drown it and, or numb it, or we take it out on others to tear them down so we feel a little better about ourselves, right? Or maybe, that, maybe that's the key. That's number one. Number two, you deny your pain and emptiness, and your denial, she says, ensures that you pass it on to those around you, and especially down to your children. You can ignore it, right? And just say, nope, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. We're fine, right? Kind of stuff. But, but as, long as, as long as that's in us, we're still going to be tearing people down. We're going to pass that on to the next generation. Or third, she says, you, you can have the courage to, to face the pain, to own the emptiness, and develop a level of empathy and compassion for yourself and for others in a way that allows you to spot hurt uh, in this world in a very unique way. Here's where I'm going with this. When we don't go to God to find that healing, to find that fullness, to receive from him first, when we don't do that, when we don't settle these issues, these issues like I'm loved and I'm chosen, I'm a part of his family. If we don't receive from him first, then we unintentionally pass on our pain and our emptiness to those around us and especially to those we love most. It so often comes out in anger and frustration and, well, if you were just blank, then my life would be better. You're ruining my life. As long as we keep going to other people, we will be empty and frustrated. The path, God says, the path to fullness in relationships, the path to relationships in a God-ordered kind of way is we start with him, right? It starts with him. It starts with us bowing our knee before him and saying, God, would you fill me? God, would you let me hear the words, right, from you that say, you are loved dearly, dearly loved. I love, it doesn't just say loved, you're loved. You are dearly loved by God. He's crazy about you. And that's something that we need to not just get here, right, but it's transformational when we get it here, when suddenly we understand to the core of our being and say, you know what, God's crazy about me. He loves me. He wants what's best for me. He has good plans for me. Maybe even, dare I say, he likes me. Man, that'll change your life. 
as holy or as uh, chosen people, holy and dearly loved. It's the truth of who you are. You are dearly loved children of God. It doesn't matter if you're performing well today, right? If things are going real well. It doesn't matter if your life is playing out the way you thought it should or would. It doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter if you feel it today or not, right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't change the fact of what's true. So God starts out this whole passage that before we talk about anything else relationally, remember who you are. You're my child, God says. You're holy. You are made perfect because of Jesus. So you are in right standing with God. You are a person in whom the living God dwells, if you're a Christ follower. He's put his spirit inside of you. And he says, I love you dearly. I love you dearly. It's who you are. I heard this uh, quote uh, this week. It's from Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself too much instead of preaching to yourself? He said, if you look at the psalmist, think of what they say. He says, why so downcast, O my soul? He says, put your hope in God. He said, he said the psalmist's soul had been depressing him and crushing him. And so he stands up and says, self, listen to me for a moment. I will speak to you. What's, what's true? Put your hope in God. We're going back to Colossians 3, right? We're told to let the message of Christ now. He says, let the message of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly. Let us be filled up with that message of Christ. Let us cling to it. We tend to think of our time in God's word as optional at best. Stats would say very few of us actually open up that book on a regular basis and read it. But let me tell you, friends, you and I need to grab on to the truth that is found in God's book. We need to preach it to ourselves sometimes. We need to cling and claim to those promises. We need to drink in his truth and remember that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are made new, that in him we are more than conquerors. We need to live in those promises and live out those promises so that we can be free to love others. That's the first part. We need to receive from God. We need to drink in from his spirit and his presence and his word. Second thing we'll go on, humble yourself. Now this one I think is probably the most countercultural thing that we'll talk about today. And it's, it's more implied in this passage. This, the second and the third points are actually the same, the same thing, but it's two parts of the same. And I think you'll see it as we kind of walk through this. But uh, I have to say, this is such a counterculture. Humility in our culture is not a value. It's just not. I mean, we're literally a selfie generation, right? I mean, we'll, we'll take pictures of ourselves, sometimes hundreds of pictures of ourselves to find that perfect one to put out there so we can get likes and thumbs up and loves and hearts and all this stuff, right? I mean, we'll do this because we, we're like, man, everybody needs to see me when I first wake up in the morning. Everybody needs to see me at the breakfast table. Everybody needs to see me with at the movies and in my backyard and all this. All right, we're, take a look, take a look. I, I read over vacation this stat that actually blew my mind. It said 50% of millennials, 50, half, 50% of millennials think, think that their life is so interesting that a movie should be made about it. Half, half of us, right? Half, half of millennials said, yeah, I, I, I hear that and I think, are you kidding me? Like, I mean, 
my life's great, but it's not that interesting. <laughs> and it probably neither is yours, right? We, we're kind of just living. We're going to work. But we're like, we are so consumed with our lives and so enamored with our lives. And we think everybody else is too, right? It, because it's all about oh, me, right? It's all about me. I read that. It's fascinating. You know, I, we do premarital counseling uh around here. One of the things we'll talk about in the, in the course of that is we'll talk about kind of dealing with um, like kind of chores around the house kind of stuff. And, and inevitably in the course of conversation, a lot of times people will say, oh yeah, I believe that chores should be 50-50. You know, like we should, we'll kind of split those things down the middle. Everybody does 50%, which I, I would argue isn't necessarily a biblical kind of framework or perspective. And I'll get back to that. But, uh, but I, I think, okay, fine. And so then we give them this little... Um, sheet of paper and it's got like a bunch of just normal household tasks on it and what inevitably happens virtually every time is that after just after they've said oh I think it should be split we should do 50-50 and you go through so well which ones do you think you should do which ones do you think your fiance should do and they'll go through and inevitably they'll give themselves less than 50% and their fiance more than 50% and I'll be like well what happened what happened 50-50 and they'll be like well you know I'm busy I got other things I don't want to do this I don't like to do this because it's all about me, right? 50, oh, but in, in, in our heads, we're like, oh, yeah, 50-50, 50-50. But we're like, no, no, I don't actually want to do that. Like, let's not, let's not do that kind of thing because we think it's about me. Let me just say, God's Word says something in this passage and from cover to cover. that Actually, I don't think we really want to hear that much. But it says this, if you want to walk the path of fullness... You've got to receive from God the first thing, but then we've got to humble ourselves because it's not all about you, and it's not all about me. It's just not. And this is such an important piece of the puzzle because I know as we start reading through the list of instructions that follow, I know how this goes because all of us tend, have the tendency to read Scripture through the through these me-centered lenses, right? And we're like, well, I don't want to do this. So we start. We'll start out. We'll start reading, and we'll say, uh, "Forgive one another, just as Christ has forgiven you." We're like, well, I don't want to do that. And and we start making excuses. In our, yeah, but okay, okay, yeah, I get that's probably good for most people. But you don't know this person. You don't know how they've hurt me. You don't know what they've. They're bad, right? They're just. Even, I don't. I don't want to forgive. We start making excuses. We start looking through those lenses and saying, no, 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 no. Uh-uh. That's not how, that's not how we roll. Forgive one. No, no, no. Or how about this one? We'll, we'll dive into this more in fullness in a second. But how about this one? Wives, submit to your husbands. We start thinking, every, I mean, it's every woman's favorite verse, really. I mean, I, I, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. But I mean, it's one of those things that we, but in our heads, we start, yeah, but he's selfish. He's a slob. He's smelly. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to submit myself to him. But God says, no, he says, humble yourself before the Lord. It's not about you. Husbands, he says, love your wives. And Ephesians says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We start thinking, but you don't know. I mean, she sits there and she complains and she controls and she nags, 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 nags. I'm not going to, I don't want to do that for her. But God says, no, it's not about you. Would you humble yourself? We start thinking, uh, I think in our own minds, we think humbling ourselves should only be done to deserving people and when we feel like it. I'm not going to do hard work for my boss. He's a jerk. 
I'm not going to serve and love and humble myself before my husband or my wife. They're an idiot. I'm not going to forgive that two-faced person that I hate. I'm not going to do that. I'll never trust him again. Even the, even the hashtag, not my president, right? Like, I, not my people, right? That's not my. But it's interesting. Peppered throughout this passage, God reminds us that we are not humbling ourselves before the other person, but we are humbling ourselves before God. We are trusting, not necessarily in the other person, we are trusting ourselves to God. It says, wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It says, children, obey your parents, for this pleases who? The Lord. Servants, slaves, in our context, sort of employees. Obey your bosses in everything. Do it with sincerity of heart and with reverence for the Lord. He says, just a reminder, it is the Lord Jesus that you are serving. That's what the text says. We live in a world that says, don't let nobody, right? Don't, don't bow before anybody. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. You know, if you don't like the way they treat you, you kick them to the curb, right? I don't have time for people with drama in my lives. This kind of stuff goes around Facebook all the time. You want to be in a relationship with me, you better treat me like a queen or like a king or like something because it's all about me. But, but when we refuse to forgive, friends, when we refuse to submit, when we refuse to love and to serve sacrificially, when we don't work for other people because they're undeserving at, at work or whatever, when we refuse to let go of the past and give somebody another chance, you want to know what that's called in, from a biblical standpoint? It's called pride. That's called us saying, no, I know better than you, God. It's, it's saying, no, I'm above them, God. It's called pride. You know what the Bible says about pride? It says God opposes the proud. Think about that. God opposes the proud. That's like we drew a line and we're lining up opposite God. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then he goes on to say, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. I think it's a fascinating picture, by the way. God stooping down. When, when we choose to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to God and say, okay, God, may your will be done. I don't like it necessarily all the time. I may, I may not understand it, but I'm choosing to obey you. I'm choosing to follow you. I'm choosing to submit to you. He says, when you humble yourself, I will lift you up in due time. The Lord will lift you up. When we lift ourselves up and we say, no, I'm above this. I'm better. Think, I'm the center of the universe. It says God opposes you. He'll probably bring you down a couple notches. But when we humble ourselves, he lifts us up. Friends, when we start talking about and thinking about the keys to relationships, it's, right, it starts with receiving from the Lord can't give what we don't have, right? receiving his love, receiving and learning from his grace and his forgiveness. We can't forgive others until we ourselves have been forgiven and learned. We can't, we can't give love. We can't serve on our own until we've received that from the Lord. But then it comes from us stooping down, right, and saying, you know what, God, I'm going to choose to follow your way, and I'm going to humble myself. It's not all about me, and I'm going to spend my life lifting up you and lifting up those around me, that takes us to the third one. Um, actually, I'll, I'll say one more thing about this before we go. I remember hearing one time, 
There's a phrase that says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. And I think, man, that's, that's kind of the picture here, right? It's not, it's not that, oh, I'm so bad, or I'm a second-class citizen, or I'm unworthy. The opposite, right? We talked about this at the beginning. No, you are dearly loved child of God. But it's, it's in the next step of thinking of ourself less and preferencing or honoring or lifting up those around us. That's honoring to God. It takes us to the third one. Go to that next slide if you would. There you go. Says this, uh, it's elevate or preference others. He starts out in verses 13 through 15, kind of after we've received from the Lord and humble ourselves, he says, Clothe yourselves with compassion. Compassion means literally suffering for those that are suffering, suffering with them, and then helping others that are in need. So clothe yourself, put it around you, wrap, wrap around compassion around your life, and kindness, and humility, and gentleness, and patience. Patience. <laughs> Think about that. Does patience characterize your relationships with other people? Are you typically patient with your kids? Are you patient with your spouse? Are you patient with friends? I think it's a fascinating one. And then he goes on and says, bear with each other. <laughs> Be committed to one another. That's what it means. Be committed to and devoted to and steadfast in your relationship with others. Right? We, we take marriage vows that says for better or for worse, but really we, we usually mean for better. This is saying bear with each other even when it's for worse. And not just in marriage, but in relationships in general. Bear with one another. Bear with each other. And forgive one another if you have a grievance against somebody else. It's not easier for you. It's not easier for me. But it's not about me. This is the path to fullness in relationships. It's about God and it's about others. Prefer them. Preference them. Treat them as you would want to be treated. Serve and love and forgive and bear with each other. Clothe yourself with that kind of love. Man, there's, that's a whole message just in those couple verses right there. But let me dig in. I want to walk through the other stuff because it's a little got some cringe factor to it, so I want to spend a little bit of time, but let's, let's keep going. The next, next section here says this. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now, let me kind of tiptoe through the minefield here, if I can, <laughs> and, uh, and just say, so first of all, so much damage has been done in, in the name of Christendom, right, in the Christian church by men using this verse in ways that it was never intended to, all right? Let me just say, husbands, guys, if you are quoting this to your wife, you're doing it wrong, <laughs> okay? Because, uh, because let me just say, if we focus in on somebody else's part, then we're missing the bulk of the passage. Can I say, the bulk of this passage is written to men. The part, the part here that says, wives, submit to your husbands, that would have surprised no one in the first century when this was written. That was the norm. When it says, children, obey your parents, especially your dads, that was the norm. That wouldn't have been a shocker to anybody. What would have been a shocker was all the stuff that gets said to men in this passage, okay? So I want you to hear that. I want you to think about this. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, so let me kind of go back to the, to the, to the wives. Uh, submit to your husband. Say, what this is not saying, first and foremost, is that you need to give up your identity or that you have to do whatever your husband wants you to do all the time. It's not a call to be a slave to your husband in that sort of sense. It is, however, a call to lift up 
and to honor your husband. It is a call to humble yourself before God and entrust yourself to him as you sort of lift up your husband. Remember here one time, submission is an invitation for somebody to lead. It's an invitation for your husband to step up and be a man. And again, wives, if you're going to go home and say that to your husband, you're like, oh, I can't wait to send them the podcast for this or something. You're doing it wrong, right? You're, all of us need to own our part of this and, and entrust the other parts to God and to our spouse or significant other or whatever. The, the Kind of the framework of this entire passage, and we'll see this in a second, is not about somebody domineering and pushing other people down. That is the opposite of what's the case here. The, the picture that we see throughout is saying, no, you need to lift up. Wives, you need to honor and lift up your husband. Husbands, you need to honor and lift up your wives and your kids. Don't be bitter and don't, don't embitter your children. God knows that this is a thing for us. Anger is the number one emotion that guys feel. We're pretty good with that one. Some of the others, not so much. But anger, we've got to, and God's saying, man, those things that, that, that are causing anger in you, bring them to me. Get filled up in me first so that you can lift up your kids, those around you, right? Lift. This whole picture is one of just increasingly honoring and lifting up and preferencing and loving those around us. Wives, preference or elevate your husband. Again, this is, a, not a, this is not a shocker for anybody living in the first century. What would be a shocker is what's coming next. I wanna, I'm going to put these together. These are directed towards men. It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Don't be harsh. Don't tear them down. Love your wives. I'll get to that and what it means in a sec. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. Provide what is right and fair to those that work for you because you also have a master in heaven and you too will be judged or repaid or rewarded for how you treat those around you. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving men and women. This would have been a shocker. But again, it's that grid work of how relationships are intended to work in God's kingdom. Do you want to live a peaceful life? Do you want to walk into the path of fullness and then elevate and preference and lift up your wife and your kids? Lift up those that work for you because it's not all about you. Now, sometimes I think loving seems like it's a little bit of a squishy word. Like we, we use it in our culture and it's still about us, right? It's because it's about a feeling that I have towards you. And so we'll say, I fell in love with you or fell out of love with you. We make all these kind of things. It's still about us. In a biblical context, the word love is sacrificial. Like I said earlier, the Ephesians passage that uses the same phrase and, and talks about wives submit to your husbands. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and as he gave up his life for her. That's how you are to love your wife. That is not a pick. That is not about me. Love, in a biblical standpoint, like how we are to love our wives, is sacrificial. It costs me something, but it's given freely, right? It's not about my good. It's about your good. That's love. And that's the call here, right, where, where God says, man, this is the picture. Husbands, love your wives like that, sacrificially for their good. Lift them up. Elevate and preference them. Lift up your wife. Lift up your kids. Lift up those that work for you. It's not about you. Receive from the Lord. Humble yourself and lift others up.
how am I doing on time? I'm running out. Let me, let me share one more story and uh, we'll be done for the day. But this story comes from a book uh, by Dan Taylor. It's called Letters to My Children. And he's writing kind of some lessons from his life to his son, Matthew. And he says this. He says, Dear Matthew, I just love the picture of this. Again, that whole receive from the Lord, humble ourselves, and preference others. It's just a great kind of word picture of that. So listen to this. Dear Matthew, when I was in sixth grade, he said, I was an all-American. I was smart. I was athletic. I was witty. I was handsome uh, and incredibly nice. He said, things went downhill fast in junior high, but for that one year at least, (laughs) I had everything. He said, unfortunately, I also had Miss Owens for an assistant teacher. She helped out Mr. Jenkins, who was our regular teacher at that time. She knew that even though I was smart and nice, there was still a thing or two I had to learn. One of the things you're expected to do in grade school in that day was learn to dance. In fact, learn to square dance. And he said, we had this terrible, uh, this terrible habit uh, of every time we went to, to go work on our dancing, we did this terrible thing. The boys would all line up at the door of our classroom. Then one at a time, each boy would actually uh, pick a girl to be his partner. The girls all would sit at their desks, and they were, as they were chosen, they would get up from their desks, and then they would join the snot-nosed kid who had honored them with their favor. He says, believe me, the boys did not like doing this. At least I didn't. But think about what it was like to be one of those girls. I mean, can you imagine, he said? Think about waiting to get picked. Think about seeing who was getting picked before you. Think about worrying about if you'd get picked at all or if you'd get picked last. He said, then think about if you were Mary. He said, Mary sat near the front of the classroom on the right side. She wasn't pretty. She wasn't real smart. She wasn't witty. She was nice, but that really wasn't enough in those days. And Mary certainly wasn't athletic. In fact, she'd had polio or something earlier in her life. So one of her arms was sort of drawn up, and and she had a bum leg and had to to kind of limp along. He said, here's where Miss Owens came in. Miss Owens took me aside one day and said, Dan, next time we do square dancing, I want you to choose Mary. He said, she, might, she may as well have told me to fly to Mars. He said, I, it, it was, this idea was so new and so inconceivable, I could barely hold it in my head. You mean pick somebody other than the best? Pick somebody other than the most pretty or the most popular when my turn came? It seemed like breaking a law of nature or something. He said, but then Miss Owen said something that just sealed the deal. He said, well, you know, it's what Jesus would do. He's like, at that point, I just dropped my head. He goes, I knew she was right. He's like, in fact, he was like, in fact, I couldn't. He's like, I, I imagine it kind of thought through. He's like, it seems like exactly the kind of thing that Jesus would have done. He said, I'm surprised I didn't see it on a flannel graph in Sunday school about Jesus going and you know, inviting the lame girl to the Jewish dance or whatever. He's like, yeah, this, is, this is just incredible. He's like, I totally knew it was what had to be someplace in the Bible. He said, I agonized. Choosing Mary would go against all the coolness that I had accumulated thus far. The day came when we went, were to do square dancing again. If God loved me, I thought, He'll make me last. (laughs) That way, picking Mary would cause no stir. I will have done the right thing, and it wouldn't have cost me anything. But of course, that's not the way it worked out. Mr. Jenkins made me first in the line. He said, there I was, my heart pounding. And now I knew what it must have felt like for the girls. The faces of the girls were all turned towards me. 
Some of them were smiling. I looked at Mary, though, and she sat kind of half turned away with her back towards me, her face staring down at her desk. Mr. Jenkins said, okay, Dan, choose your partner. I remember feeling very far away. I heard my voice say, I choose Mary. He said, never has reluctant virtue been so rewarded. I still see her face undimmed in my memory. She lifted her head and on her face, reddened with pleasure, surprised and embarrassment all at the same time, was the most genuine look of delight and even pride that I had ever seen before or since. It was so pure that I had to look away because I knew I didn't deserve it. Mary came up, she took my arm, as we'd been instructed to do, and walked beside me, bad leg and all, just like a princess. He says, Mary's my age now. I never saw her after that year. I don't know what life's been like for her, what she's doing, but I'd like to think that she has a fond memory of at least one day in sixth grade. I know I do. What a great picture. Jesus speaks to us. God speaks to us through his word. And he says, man, that's the picture. We live so much of our lives about me. What I want, what I feel, what right, all, all this kind of stuff. And God says, you want to know the key to walking into fullness in your relational worlds? It starts by humbling ourselves before God, right? Bowing our knee and saying, God, would you fill me? Finding what we need in him, his presence, his truth, his word, clinging to that, fighting for that. It comes in humbling ourselves then before others, it's not about me. It's not about my preference. And then choosing instead to elevate and lift up and honor and love those around us. In our families, yes, of course. Our husbands, our wives, our kids. But in the world around us as, as well. At work, at school. Friends, I don't know where you're at with God today. I don't know what he's speaking to you. Maybe you're in a place uh, where really you do need to receive Maybe it's time for you this morning to open up your heart to God. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, who cares? doesn't matter. But, and just be honest, say, God, forgive me for so much of my life has been about me. Would you, would you teach me? Would you fill me? Would you lead me? Would you forgive me? Would you make me new? Would you, I want to receive from you and then live it out in the world out there. Maybe there's just some, some pride stuff in our own lives. We've been fighting with God on some of this stuff. Maybe it's relational dynamics at home and we've been, right, over and over, hit banging our heads against the wall. Maybe it's time God's saying, you know, would you humble yourself? Would you entrust that relationship to me? And would you walk in my ways? Maybe there's some specifics with a husband or a wife or a friend or a coworker where God's asking you and nudging you by his spirit this morning. Say, it's time. Would you, would you preference them? Would you love on them? Would you stoop down and serve them, not for your good, but for theirs, for their good and for God's glory? It's the path to fullness. It's the path to life. Let's close in prayer. God, that's our, our cry this morning. We want to we follow you. God, would you, would you meet with us here today? Would you fill us with your presence? Remind us of your love. Remind us that we are dearly loved children of God. Would you fill us with your spirit? Make us aware of your presence. Would you even just fill us with your joy and your peace and the life that you have for us? 
And as we leave from here today, God, may we leave on mission, on a mission to, uh, to, make, to, to make your name known around this region, but also to serve and to love those around us in Jesus' name. We love you. We need you. We offer ourselves to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.